Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available... On digital, Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From high atop the Jack-Jack Memorial Reading Throne here in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library within the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure, the podcast in which I read Jude the Obscure out loud and comment on it as I go. I am your host, your friend, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, Michael Ian Black, and this is our final episode together. We have reached the end of Jude the Obscure, page 484. We begin here on my 1988 Penguin Classics edition of Jude the Obscure. We have followed Jude through all of his follies, and that pun is, of course, intentional, both from Hardy and myself. And now we find ourselves at the end of the line. The book is nearing its end. Jude is nearing his end. Arabella is procuring for herself the security of her own future as she seduces the artful Vilner, quack physician who has been tending to our own Jude. Sue is ensconced with her husband, Phillotson. She has given herself to him. Oh, God, she said, before doing the nasty. And we can only presume they've been doing the nasty. And for Sue, we can presume it has been nasty. As for me, things have been changing in my life as well. We have gone through some downs together, you and I, over the last 10 episodes or so. But like in all things, there is sunshine anew. Sitting beside me is a 
11 week old, maybe 10 week old puppy named Squash. He is a rescue from somewhere down south. We got him via Brooklyn. Too early to say whether he will be a shitty little rat dog one way or the other, but he is a little fella. Half dachshund, we think, because he is long and getting longer. Half, perhaps, mini pin or something. He has Jack Jack's, some of Jack Jack's facial features, and two very floppy ears. Squash has been, as you can well imagine, very annoying with the teething and the biting and just the constant puncturing of flesh that puppies do. He is not house trained. He has been piddling and pooping wherever he sees fit. He has been whining in the mornings because we keep him kenneled. And so we have been up with him the way you get up with a newborn baby. And it has been a disaster, a lovely disaster, because he is a fine little lad, but a disaster nonetheless, the way all puppies are disasters. For the first few weeks of us having him, he didn't even know that the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library even existed because I didn't allow him into this room. And so this is an entirely new wing of the manse for him to explore. At the moment, he is upon the reading throne with me, contented to lie here because he has been busy biting the face of our other dog and that wears him out a little bit. We have another dog, Oli, I've mentioned before, who is a big Labrador and Squash just likes to attack his face. And Oli, being a Labrador, allows him to do so. So there is new life in Lestate Black, new hope, new fun. I begin with the final chapter here, chapter 11. The last pages to which the chronicler of these lives would ask the reader's attention are concerned with the scene in and out of Jude's bedroom when leafy summer came round again. His face was now so thin that his old friends would hardly have known him. It was afternoon, and Arabella was at the looking-glass curling her hair, which operation she performed by heating an umbrella stay in the flame of a candle she had lighted and using it upon the flowing lock. I guess it's like a makeshift curling iron. Now, if only Arabella, you know, smart as she is, had thought to herself, hey, I could make this into a thing. She'd be a billionaire if she just could have invented the curling iron, but she wasn't, she wasn't quite there. When she had finished this, practiced a dimple and put on her things, she cast her eyes round upon Jude. He seemed to be sleeping, though his position was an elevated one, his malady preventing him lying down. Arabella, hatted, gloved, and ready, sat down and waited, as if expecting someone to come and take her place as nurse. Certain sounds from without revealed that the town was in festivity, though little of the festival, whatever it might have been, could be seen here. Bells began to ring, and the notes came into the room through the open window and traveled round Jude's head in a hum. 
they made her restless, and at last she said to herself, Why ever doesn't father come? So I don't know if she's waiting for her father or for a priest. Don't know. She looked again at Jude, critically gauged his ebbing life as she had done so many times during the late months, and glancing at his watch, which was hung up by way of timepiece, rose impatiently. Still he slept, and coming to a resolution, she slipped from the room, closed the door noiselessly, and descended the stairs. The house was empty. The attraction which moved Arabella to go abroad had evidently drawn away the other inmates long before. It was a warm, cloudless, enticing day. She shut the front door and hastened round into Chief Street, and when near the theater could hear the notes of the organ, a rehearsal for a coming concert being in progress. She entered under the archway of Old Gate College, where men were putting up awnings round the quadrangle for a ball in the hall that afternoon. People who had come up from the country for the day were picnicking on the grass, and Arabella walked along the gravel paths and under the aged limes. But finding this place rather dull, she returned to the streets and watched the carriages drawing up for the concert, numerous dons and their wives, and undergraduates with gay female companions crowding up likewise. When the doors were closed and the concert began, she moved on. The powerful notes of that concert rolled forth through the swinging yellow blinds of the open windows over the housetops and into the still air of the lanes. They reached so far as to the room in which Jude lay, and it was about this time that his cough began again and awakened him. As soon as he could speak, he murmured, his eyes still closed, A little water, please. Nothing but the deserted room perceived his appeal, and he coughed to exhaustion again, saying still more feebly, Water, some water, Sue, Arabella. The room remained still as before. Presently, he gasped again, Throat, water, Sue, darling, drop of water, please, oh please. No water came, and the organ notes, faint as a bee's hum, rolled in as before. While he remained, his face changing, shouts and hurrahs came from somewhere in the direction of the river. Ah, yes, the remembrance games, he murmured, and I hear, and Sue defiled. Well, now we need to see what the remembrance games were, because uh, if, uh, you know, he's there in bed, Sue is defiled, Arabella is gone... And everything is amiss as Jude lays dying in his bed, thirsty, nobody to hear him, in his misery. Games of Remembrance. 
it seems like it's a British thing. A like a like a it seems like it's a it seems like it's a uh, like a thing you do on Memorial Day or Veterans Day or something where you remember all the past wars and such. And then there's festivities and games and uh, and and probably tug of wars and you know probably Scots throwing telephone poles over stuff and you know all all kinds of all kinds of fun stuff. Pork pie throwing contests and I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what kind of games they play in England. You know, cricket sessions, racquetball, paddle the fanny. Probably, probably long bouts of paddle the fanny, which seems like it would be some sort of British children's game. Fancy a game of paddle the fanny. You know that kind of thing. But anyway, it's a it's it's a fun day, and uh, and Jude is not enjoying the fun at all. In fact, he is dying. He is thirsty, and Sue is defiled. The hurrahs were repeated, drowning the faint organ notes. Jude's face changed more. He whispered slowly, his parched lips scarcely moving. Let the day perish wherein I was born, and the night in which it was said, There is a man, child, conceived. And that is a footnote 67. Our final footnote, in fact. Jude's final reflections are borrowed from those of Job when he cursed his day. The quotations will all be found in Job 3. So, you know, we know that Jude is a Jobian character. He has been suffering. But unlike Job, has no faith to sustain him. And he is cursing He has no faith to sustain him. And so he asks, like Job, for the day wherein he was born to be perished. And he quotes again, Let that day be darkness. Let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it. Lo, let that night be solitary. Let no joyful voice come therein. Hurrah! He's hearing from. It says in, in it, it's got it in parentheses, so he's hearing the distance, the hurrahs. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? For now, should I have lain still and been quiet, I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. Hurrah! There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and the great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Wherefore is light given to him that is in misery, and life unto the bitter in soul? Meanwhile, Arabella, in her journey to discover what was going on, took a shortcut down a narrow street and threw an obscure (laughs) nook into the quad of Cardinal. It was full of bustle and brilliant in the sunlight with flowers and other preparations for a ball here also. A carpenter nodded to her, one who had formerly been a fellow workman of Jude's. A corridor was in course of erection from the entrance to the hall staircase of gay red and buff 
bunting. Wagon loads of boxes containing bright plants in full bloom were being placed about, and the great staircase was covered with red cloth. She nodded to one workman and another, and ascended to the hall on the strength of their acquaintance, where they were putting down a new floor and decorating for the dance. The cathedral bell close at hand was sounding for five o'clock service. I should not mind having a spin there with a fellow's arm round my waist, she said to one of the men. But, Lord, I must be getting home again. There's a lot to do. No dancing for me. When she reached home, she was met at the door by Stag and one or two other of Jude's fellow stoneworkers. We're just going down to the river, said the former, to see the boat bumping, but we've called round on our way to ask how your husband is. He's sleeping nicely, thank you, said Arabella. That's right. Well, now can't you give yourself half an hour's relaxation, Mrs. Farley, and come along with us. Twould do you good. I should like to go, said she. I've never seen the boat racing, and I hear it's good fun. Come along. How I wish I could. She looked longingly down the street. Wait a minute, then. I'll just run up and see how he is now. Father is with him, I believe, so I can most likely come. Oh, and so there's a third father, of course, the father that I have not named, and I suppose that father may very well be with him. They waited, and she entered. Downstairs, the inmates were absent as before, having, in fact, gone in a body to the river where the procession of boats was to pass. When she reached the bedroom, she found that her father had not even now come. Why couldn't he have been here, she said impatiently. He wants to see the boats himself, that's what it is. However, on looking round to the bed, she brightened, for she saw that Jude was apparently sleeping, though he was not in the usual half-elevated posture necessitated by his cough. He had slipped down and lay flat. A second glance caused her to start, and she went to the bed. His face was quite white and gradually becoming rigid. She touched his fingers. They were cold, though the body was still warm. She listened at his chest. All was still within. The bumping of near thirty years had ceased. Wait, he's not even 30? Is that what you're telling me? He's not even 30? Jeez. I thought, I mean, I didn't think he was 50, but I thought, I thought he'd at least made 40. He's not even 30? God. Oh, that really is, that is glum. After her first appalled sense of what had happened... The faint notes of a military or other brass band from the river reached her ears, and in a provoked tone she exclaimed, To think he should die just now. Why did he die just now? Then meditating another moment or two, she went to the door, softly closed it as before, and again descended the stairs. Here she is said one of the workmen. We wondered if you were coming after all. Come along, we must be quick to get a good place. Well, how is he sleeping well still? Of course, we don't want to drag you away if... Oh, yes, sleeping quite sound. He won't wake yet, she said hurriedly. 
They went with the crowd down Cardinal Street, where they presently reached the bridge, and the gay barges burst upon their view. Thence they passed by a narrow slit down to the riverside path, now dusty, hot, and thronged. Almost as soon as they had arrived, the grand procession of boats began, the oars smacking with a loud kiss on the face of the stream as they were lowered from the perpendicular. "'Oh, I say, how jolly! I'm glad I've come,' said Arabella, "'and it can't hurt my husband, my being away.' On the opposite side of the river, on the crowded barges, were gorgeous nosegays of feminine beauty, fashionably arrayed in green, pink, blue, and white. The blue flag of the boat club denoted the center of interest, beneath which a band in red uniform gave out the notes she had already heard in the death chamber. Collegians of all sorts, in canoes with ladies, watching keenly for our boat, darted up and down. While she regarded the lively scene, somebody touched Arabella in the ribs, and looking round, she saw Vilbert. "'That filter is operating, you know,' he said with a leer. "'Shame on ye to wreck a heart so. "'I shan't talk of love today. "'Why not? It is a general holiday.' She did not reply. Vilbert's arm stole round her waist, which act could be performed unobserved in the crowd. In arch expression overspread Arabella's face at the feel of the arm, but she kept her eyes on the river as if she did not know of the embrace. The crowd surged, pushing Arabella and her friends, sometimes nearly into the river, and she would have laughed heartily at the horseplay that succeeded if the imprint on her mind's eye of a pale, statuesque countenance she had lately gazed upon had not sobered her a little. The fun on the water reached the acme of excitement. There were immersions, there were shouts, the race was lost and won. The pink and blue and yellow ladies retired from the barges, and the people who had watched began to move. Well, it's been awfully good, cried Arabella, but I think I must get back to my poor man. Father is there, so far as I know, but I'd better get back. What's your hurry? Well, I, I must go. Dear, dear, this is awkward. At the narrow gangway where the people ascended from the riverside path to the bridge, the crowd was literally jammed into one hot mass, Arabella and Vilbert with the rest, and here they remained motionless, Arabella exclaiming, Dear, dear, more and more impatiently. For it had just occurred to her mind that if Jude were discovered to have died alone, an inquest might be deemed necessary. What a fidget you are, my love, said the physician, who being pressed close against her by the throng, had no need of personal effort for contact. Just as well have patience, there's no getting away yet. It was nearly ten minutes before the wedged multitude moved sufficiently to let them pass through. As soon as she got up into the street, Arabella hastened on, forbidding the physician to accompany her further that day. 
She did not go straight to her house, but to the abode of a woman who performed the last necessary offices for the poorer dead, where she knocked. My husband has just gone, poor soul, she said. Can you come and lay him out? Arabella waited a few minutes, and the two women went along, elbowing their way through the stream of fashionable people pouring out of Cardinal Meadow, and being nearly knocked down by the carriages. I must call at the sextons about the bell, too, said Arabella. It is just round here, isn't it? I'll meet you at my door. By ten o'clock that night, Jude was laying on the bedstead at his lodging, covered with a sheet and straight as an arrow. Through the partly opened window, the joyous throb of a waltz entered from the ballroom at Cardinal. Two days later, when the sky was equally cloudless and the air equally still, two persons stood beside Jude's open coffin in the same little bedroom. On one side was Arabella, on the other, the widow Edlin. And with that, let's take a break. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're back on this final episode of Obscure. It has to be, honestly. Because Jude died. So, you know. And he's now in his coffin with two people mourning, Arabella and the widow Edland. And I go on. They were both looking at Jude's face, the worn old eyelids of Mrs. Edland being red. How beautiful he is, said she. Yes, he's a handsome corpse, said Arabella. The window was still open to ventilate the room, and it being about noontide, the clear air was motionless and quiet without. From a distance came voices and an apparent noise of persons stamping. What's that? murmured the old woman. 
Oh, that's the doctors of the theatre conferring honorary degrees on the Duke of Hamptonshire and a lot more illustrious gents of that sort. It's Remembrance Week, you know. The cheers come from the young men. Aye, young and strong-lunged, not like our poor boy here. An occasional word, as from someone making a speech, floated from the open windows of the theatre across to this quiet corner at which there seemed to be a smile of some sort upon the marble features of Jude, while the old superseded Delphin editions of Virgil and Horace and the dog-eared Greek testament on the neighboring shelf and the few other volumes of this sort that he had not parted with, roughened with stone dust where he had been in the habit of catching them up for a few minutes between his labors, seemed to pale to a sickly cast at the sounds. The bells struck out joyously, and their reverberations traveled round the bedroom. Arabella's eyes were moved from Jude to Mrs. Edlin. Do you think she'll come? she asked. I could not say. She swore not to see him again. How is she looking? Tired and miserable, poor heart. Years and years older than when you saw her last. Quite a staid, worn woman now. Tis the man. She can't stomach him, even now. If Jude had been alive to see her, he would hardly have cared for her any more, perhaps. That's what we don't know. Didn't he ever ask you to send for her, since he came to see her in that strange way? No, quite the contrary. I offered to send, and he said I was not to let her know how ill he was. Did he forgive her? Not as I know. Well, poor little thing— "'Tis to be believed she's found forgiveness somewhere. "'She said she had found peace. "'She may swear that on her knees to the holy cross upon her necklace till she's hoarse, "'but it won't be true,' said Arabella. "'She's never found peace since she left his arms, "'and never will again till she's as he is now.'" And that is the end of Jude the Obscure. Arabella speaks the truth at the end, does she not? Sue has never found peace after she left his arms, and she never will again until she is as he is now. Is my father with him? Well, in fact, he was. It's an interesting uh, scene there at the end, because throughout the book, Hardy has given bad tidings and bad news and dark forebodings the accompaniment of ill weather, winds and rains and storms and hails and all kinds of ill meteorological events. But now, for Jude's passing, he gives a scene of gaiety and remembrance. Boats racing, flowers in bloom, young collegians on the arms of pretty ladies. 
doctorates being bestowed upon gentlemen. It is the day Jude would have wished for himself had he lived the life he envisioned for himself. It is the day that he would have enjoyed as a young man, maybe of 18 or 19 years old, to have a award conferred upon him upon completion of his studies. And so the remembrance as Jude lay dying is the remembrance of something that never was for him. And yet he remembers it, I think, all the same because I think he lived it over and over and over again in his mind. Time and again, you remember when he arrived back at Christminster with Sue and the children in tow, and it was a rainy day, but there were new doctors uh, coming to be awarded their degrees, and they waited out in the rain, in the storm, to watch Jude craning his head above the audience to see And, you know, he never got it. I don't just mean like the degree. He never got it. He never found sustaining love or sustaining purpose. He never found sustaining uh, fatherhood. He never found a sustaining friend. And yet, and yet, I say, all of us, having gone through this journey together, I think must believe on some level that Jude lived the most honorable of lives. What did it get him in the end? Not much. Some old books covered in stone dust and a wife abandoning him in his final moments. But really, you know, in the end, what do any of us have? couple books, some memories, some music playing, photographs. We are hopefully surrounded by those who love us. But as we take that final journey, you know, it has been remarked upon time and time again. We take that journey alone. So I don't know. For Jude, maybe it was best to be alone to hear the faint notes of celebration drifting in through the window. For him, perhaps it was best to not have Arabella at his side. In fact, I would argue it is best. Only Sue, only Sue at his bedside would have relieved his final moments somewhat. But even she could not stay off. But even she could not stave off the inevitable. He was going to die. And I think he was okay with it, ultimately. He said he was. He said, look, I'm going out in the rain. I'm sickly. I'm going to go see Sue one last time. I'm going to tell her what I need to tell her. I'm going to hope for something in return. He got it. And then he said, I'm going to die. And so he did. His life, despite being incomplete in the sense of thwartedness, was complete nonetheless, in the sense that he experienced all there was to have in this life, right? I mean, he kind of did it all. 
He went from little town to big city. He got educated. He fell in love. He fell out of love. He found love again. He lost love again. He had uh, children and he lost them. He, he knew everything there was to know in this life. And in the end, what is left of him? Just a little piece of carved stone. Some, you know, floret on a building somewhere some inscription on a grave. It is a book of legacy, I suppose. Remember, this is Hardy's own last novel. He did not die after, but he did give up novel writing. He went instead to poetry. But it is a book about legacy, I think, and fate, and what we leave behind when we leave this world. And I think the answer that Hardy is arriving at is not much. Not much. It doesn't matter who you are. Jude was talking about hearing the ghosts in Christminster as he walked down the cobblestone streets, you know, racked with fever and fatigue after visiting Sue, and their voices held no more allure for him. The great minds, all the great minds, you know, echoing down across the centuries and bouncing across the stone and into his ears meant almost nothing to him. So it's a faithless book in a lot of ways. In the literal sense, that it is a book about the loss of faith. It's a faithless book in the sense that Hardy himself seems to have no faith in the institutions of his time. And it's a faithless book in the sense that Hardy seems to have no illusions about what we leave behind when we go. So it's a pretty, you know, everybody said, it's a pretty sad book, Michael. Are you sure you want to read Jude the Obscure? And I said, don't tell me anything. No spoilers. And people were very good. There were no spoilers. No, even on Twitter, no spoilers. But as, as I leave it now and I think about what the book is about and, what, and how the book itself leaves you, the word faithless does seem to be the most apt. It's macabre in the sense that, you know, there's, the, there's obviously this great tragedy that happens and it's morbid in that sense. And it's sad in the sense that Jude is constantly thwarted. And, you know, we feel bad for Jude. We sort of laugh at Arabella and feel bad for so many of the characters. We feel terrible for Sue, who, of course, is in regaining her faith. It's a cold faith. It is not an enervating faith. It's a faith that is more akin to a selling of the soul, almost, as it's a repentance. So she's faithless. But the reason I think... And and again, I'm just digesting this now for the first time. But the reason I think the book is so fucking sad is not because of anything that happens within it. Because we've all read books about, you know, marriages that don't work and unwanted pregnancies and murder suicides and all the rest of it. But the reason that I think it's so sad is because it ends on a note of utter faithlessness. Nothing can be trusted. 
Arabella is lying through her teeth to the widow Edlin as they look at Jude in repose, in his death repose. She's lying to Edlin, even in that moment, because she doesn't want to be blamed for causing his death. Nobody can be trusted. Nothing can be trusted. Institutions, not people, not religion, not even work itself, not even life can be trusted. All of it is faithless. So the bleakness of Jude the Obscure comes not from any of the events or characters within. It comes from the conclusion that Hardy draws, which is, it's not even naturalistic, I would say. It's humanist in the sense that it concerns itself with humanity and seems to possess a great love for humanity. But the bleakness of the book, from a humanitarian point of view, is that his conclusion is that we're all fucked. Or maybe his conclusion is that there are fleeting moments of happiness for even the most wretched of us, and we should just kind of seize them and hold them tight and grasp them the best that we can, knowing full well that they are fleeting and that what is coming for us all in the end is our own obscurity. We will be lost, all of us, to time. Even the stones upon which Jude carves will be lost to time. Yes, time, that implacable foe. And it is time for me to take another break. So wrapping up, Jude the Obscure here on Obscure, trying to make sense of how the book ends. And like I said, there's this feeling of faithlessness, this feeling that what's coming for all of us in the end is obscurity. And I want to say that Hardy thinks that's okay. But I'm not sure that he does. (laughs) I mean, I'm not sure that Hardy's okay with that. I'm not sure that he is settled in his bones with the thought that everything that we are, all that we love, everything we have done will be washed down that river. Because even Hardy, who has survived, in a sense, you know, these last 150 years or whatever it is, 160, 170, 200, maybe we'll be reading him in 300 years, who knows? But you get the sense that even Hardy is feeling like it's all pointless and it's all moot. That's why the book is so bleak. That's why people say, oh, geez, don't read Jude the Obscure. Oh, no, that's a sad book. Hey, Shakespeare, that's a real sad book you got there, Shakespeare. Why are you reading that one? It is sad because we recognize the truth of it too. We recognize the truth that we're nothing. Look, as an atheist myself, as somebody who is now of a certain age, and I don't, 
and I, I dare not say what age. I dare not date myself, friends, but I'm 48. As somebody who is looking on the backside of his life now, one of the dawning realizations that I've had over the last few years is that I don't care. Like, I don't care about what I leave behind other than a positive remembrance, my own remembrance day, of, for, for my kids and not much else, you know? Now, Jude didn't even have that, which really is bleak. Little Father Time gets us all in the end, does he not? Whether by his own hand or just the natural course of things. And of course, I think about losing my own friend over these last few weeks and, you know, kind of continuing to experience that death because a death does not end when the person ends. The death begins when life ends and the death has its own life, I think, as you experience what it means to lose somebody that has its own life. And then I've got this thing, this little, this new little shitty rat dog who wasn't even alive three months ago. So that was Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. I don't know if we will do this again. I would like to. I would like to do another season. So perhaps we will, perhaps we won't. That's life, right? Hey, Shakespeare, that's life. So for those of you who stayed with me throughout this terrible idea, and I think we can agree, reading Jude the Obscure out loud and commenting on it as you go is a terrible idea. But for those of you who stuck with it throughout the entire journey, I thank you. For me, it's been one of the funnest things I've done. And edifying in a way. I didn't think it would be. And now I'm feeling kind of sad about Jude. I didn't want to feel sad about Jude. I wanted to put down the book, put it away, and never think of it again. But God damn it, I'm going to be thinking about Jude for a long time. And I guess that's, that's why it's a classic. Because it sticks in you. You know? It just sinks its little teeth into you like a puppy does. And it draws blood sometimes, like a puppy does. <sighs> All right, that's the end. Until next time, I wish you adieu. Obscure has been brought to you by Earwolf. For more information, you can visit our show page at earwolf.com. You've listened to the series, but now share the love. Tell a friend to subscribe to Obscure in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. And spread the word with a nice review. I literally just read a book to you out loud. It's the least you could do. Obscure was produced by Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and Robin Lynn, who also mixed and edited the show with music composed by Craig Wedren. Special thanks to everyone at Earwolf, especially Chris Bannon, Colin Anderson, and the Earwolf engineer team of Brett Morris, Sam Kiefer, and Ryan Connor. From the Jack Jack Memorial Reading Throne within the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library. In the wilds of Connecticut, I am Michael Ian Black. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.